Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Jake LaFave. I'm the lead pastor at Christ City Church East Vancouver, here with Brett Landry. And we just finished a conversation with Costi Hinn. He's a pastor in Arizona, author of the book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. Brett, if the last name Hinn sounds familiar to me, where do I know that from? Well, you know that name from Costi's more famous uncle, Benny Hinn, uh, faith healer, televangelist, prosperity preacher, world traveler, money spender. Um, He is a prosperity preacher of great renown, and uh, people have seen him in his white suit uh, preaching the gospel of prosperity, where if you will simply sow that seed, if you will give that money, God will probably hear you and bless you, and it will activate your faith, and you can have all of the health and wealth and prosperity that Benny Hinn has as well. So fantastic to have Costi come on the podcast and tell us his story of growing up in that family and coming to Christ in the midst of that and coming to a a much different view of who God is, what the scriptures teach, and what the gospel really is. We really think you're going to enjoy this interview. Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Brett Landry. I'm here with Jake LaFave, and on the line today we have Costi Hinn. Costi is a pastor, an author. He's got a passion to preach the gospel, serve the church. He's the co-author of Defining Deception and the author of God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel that just came out in July of 2019. Uh, Costi and his wife have three young children and uh, he's a pastor at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona, about 20 minutes outside of Phoenix. Costi, welcome to the podcast. Uh, good to be here, Brett. I need to add one more thing to that bio, and it's my wife is due with our fourth in the spring. Oh, so. congratulations. <laughs> congratulations. That's great. Yeah. Now, yeah, we're now, excited. Costi, you have uh, a bit of a Vancouver connection, so us sitting here in the city of Vancouver and you sitting outside of Phoenix and Gilbert there. Um, just tell us a little bit. You grew up in Vancouver. Yeah, my connection to uh, the States is that I was born in Orlando, but my parents moved to Vancouver when I was barely about to be two years old. And my both my parents are actually from Toronto. So we're a Canadian family. My mom was born and raised in Hamilton. My dad moved to Toronto from Israel. And then we went to Vancouver uh, like 1986, 87, right in that range. And um, we ended up having a church there. My dad planted a church in downtown Vancouver. And then I grew up in uh, in the South Surrey area mostly. We lived in Richmond for a bit as well and went to school out there. And then I only came back to the U.S. when I uh, went to college. I was about 19 years old. So there's a significant portion of your formative years were right here in our city. And um, when I first moved to Vancouver in, in uh, it was April of 2011, I came here from Alberta and uh, I remember uh, having a guy reach out to me on Twitter. His name was Costi Hinn and, uh, <laughs> and uh, welcoming me to the city. We were moving here to plant a church and uh, got a welcome from you on, on the tweet machine, man. So um, I, I remember saying to some of the other guys that I was working with, I said, do you guys know a, a youth pastor named Costi Hinn? And, and they sort of looked at me strange and said, yeah. And I said, well, you, can you tell me a little bit about him? And um, they told me about your, your surname. They told me about the name Hin and the connection of Vancouver. Yeah. Costi, can you just tell us a little bit um, about that? Because you have a, a reasonably famous last name. Yeah, so you were uh, one of those neat moments for me when we reconnected. And I actually told my wife, uh, who we, we got married in 2012, and we were living in Vancouver in 2011. And I was 
the youth pastor uh, at my dad's church and basically uh, was going to take over the church eventually. And I, I did have a, a younger edge to me where I wasn't necessarily uh, going to run around in a, in a white suit per se, like my Uncle Benny. Uh, that's kind of where the name of the family gets more prominent. My Uncle Benny Hinn is a televangelist, kind of a faith healer, wears a white suit. If you're not familiar, he's on YouTube and been on TV a lot. And uh, he'll wave his jacket at people or touch people on the head and, and they fall over. And he preaches a message that says Jesus is going to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy if you have enough faith and if you give enough money. And so uh, maybe you've seen the reality TV shows where you got the preachers rolling in Bentleys and living in mansions. And uh, there's, there's like Instagram accounts now, prophets and watches and preachers and sneakers and all that stuff. And it's the, the high life Christian celebrity approach. And Jesus is like the magic genie who's going to give you all those things. So that's how I grew up. And we flew on private planes, uh, lived in mansions, drove the most luxurious cars around. And so actually what's easy, because Brett, you brought it up, we can walk it back from 2011 um, in that range. But I grew up in Vancouver, and when I was about 19 years old, I went to college in the States, and I was playing baseball. And uh, I began to meet people who started to question the way that we were doing ministry and living life. And I had always grown up thinking and learning in Vancouver, Lower Mainland and beyond, uh, that anybody who was questioning us or challenging what we believed was just from the devil. That's what we were taught. Mm-hmm. So other denominations, uh, other churches, like if people were Baptist or they were non-denominational conservatives or what have you, we would say that those were dead churches. And we were the churches with the real power and the real Holy Spirit. And over time, for example, one year, uh, the Fifth Estate on CBC did a documentary on our family. And I remember sitting around uh, in the living room watching CBC and being told and talking about it as a family that this was clearly the devil attacking us because we were super anointed and he was just trying to bring our ministry down. And so that was the mentality for me. And over the years, people began to ask me questions. They were loving. They were very firm in their belief systems, but they were kind to me and started to ask questions. And so I had a baseball coach in the States um, who began to question some of the things that I believed, and it made me think deeper than I ever had. Um, I remember a gal in my high school at when I was going to Fraser Valley Christian High uh, there in the lower mainland. I think it's like part of Surrey Christian School, that network. I was going there. There was a gal in my senior class who got cancer, and I wanted to go heal her. I just kind of told my dad, hey, let's, let's go heal her. And I tried to rally family members because we, we would say that we have these gifts and we could just go heal. And so I said, let's go heal her. And the response was, well, they don't believe like us. They don't have enough faith, and so it'll ne- it won't work. And I said, well, if we've got these gifts, let's, let's go do it, and then they'll believe. We'll, we'll do it like Jesus did and, and go heal and go around doing good, and then people will believe what we're saying. And that was dismissed. And things like that, they were what I would call cracks in the dam of my theology. So I started to question my belief system a little bit, but I always walked it back because we were also taught uh, you never question anointed leaders. You never, ever go against family, and you don't, quote-unquote, touch the Lord's anointed, which is 
from the Old Testament, where, uh, you know, God anoints kings in Israel, and he has prophets, and he tells the people, like, you can't kill them. So you, you can't do anything violent against the leaders that I've put in position. And so, uh, but we use that to say, you cannot speak against anyone, you can't even question. And so I always equate it to growing up in a hybrid between the royal family and the mafia. You got the wealth and the lavishness of the royal family, and then you've got kind of the tight, tight-lipped gag order, so to speak, of the mafia. And that was my normal. And obviously, one day God just blew apart my my life and transformed the way I saw the world. Costi, if I can ask you, um, you know, your story there is, is really compelling. I had a chance to read your book uh, yesterday, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. One of the things that I found particularly interesting in the book was how you uh, located the origins of the prosperity gospel in something you called the New Thought. Um, it's a, you said it's a metaphysical cult, uh, I think, from, is it the 1800s? Is that right? Yeah, late Late 1800s, you've got um, New Thought ideologists, if you will, like Phineas Quimby, uh, E.W. Kenyon would come after, and um, they they begin to introduce ideas. Like here's one kind of statement: uh, "What you confess, you can possess." So, kind of kind of like Oprah theology, right? The the secret to to having is just think it, and you can have it. Very very New Age type of ideas. And when does that start to intersect with, like, Christians are now picking up on this and, and sort of, you know, merging it with the Scriptures? Well, throughout the 1900s, preachers would begin to use some of those ideas and take the idea of confession, right? Like First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Or if you believe in your heart, Romans 10, 9, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. Preachers begin to take the idea of confession, merge it with new thought ideal ideology, and say, "Hey, just like you know, Brett, Jake, you guys can confess your sin and confess Christ as Lord and receive eternal life, which Jesus died for. Well, you could also confess healing and blessings and wealth and a great life, and then." Jesus died for that, too. I mean, I know most of that's in heaven, but who said you can't have it now? And the uh, explosion across the church world and across the world um, was felt, and preachers began to use these type of teachings on radio, on television. They used to say, hey, if you give to this ministry, we're like good soil, you know, like a farmer. We're good soil. If you give your money here, God will bless you. And then they begin to get wealthy. And as they got wealthier, it's like a Ponzi scheme or, a, you know, one of those multi-level marketing things where the guys at the top are living large and telling everybody else, hey, if you give to this, if you jump on board and believe in it, you could have this too. But the reality is, uh, you know, th- those are the one percenters. Nobody's living like that except the guy getting all the offerings. And it became very attractive to sell the American dream or the Canadian dream, if you will. Yeah, I think that we can see some of these things that you've written in your book, uh, where you get specific about some of the opulence and some of the wealth and the way that that was lived out. Um, Do you want to just give the listeners a a little window into the kind of life that was being lived at the top of that uh, system of thinking and that prosperity gospel preaching? Yeah, we flew on a Gulfstream jet, so picture 
you know, like when Dana White flies around for the UFC or LeBron gets on an airplane or anything like that. We were, we were living, flying, and eating and staying like the top celebrities and top wealth earners in the world. Um, one experience that I'll never forget, we went to Dubai and we stayed at the Burj Al Arab, which is the hotel that you've seen on Travel Channel maybe, shaped like the sail. And we stayed. It's on a man-made island. We got picked up in three white Bentleys back then. Uh, they use Rolls Royces. You can get picked up in a helicopter. You can basically choose your menu of accommodation. And we get there, and we had booked the Royal Suite. And the Royal Suite was $25,000 U.S. dollars a night. And if you can imagine, I mean, that's it's some people's salary for a whole year. And we stayed in the Royal Suite and, and lived large. And there were other opportunities we had and places we went. We went to Monte Carlo. Um, stayed in the Hotel de Paris. We uh, went shopping and gambling and kind of just had a lot of fun there. Been to London, uh, Paris, stayed at the Ritz Paris. And then, of course, you know, different, more exotic or places with the the um, almost iconic feel. Like you go to Greece and you stay on the Aegean Sea and we stayed in places that had their own swimming pools and, you know, infinity pools dropping off into the ocean off of cliffs and uh, just everything that you and I would see in magazines now or on travel channel and, and think that exists. Uh, we stayed there, lived there and ate there. And to me, that was just preaching the gospel and being faithful. That was God's blessing on my life because I was doing ministry and being faithful to God. And one of the most ironic moments ever in my life was I'm about 20 years old and I'm in my hotel room in at the Grand Resort Laganisi in Greece. I'm standing there on these rocks that are just below my infinity pool. And I am looking out over the Aegean Sea and I'm thinking, like, man, I've arrived. Like, all I have to do is keep serving for a few more years and I'm going to inherit my dad's church or my uncle's ministry. It was repeatedly prophesied over me that I was the Elisha, you know, and Elijah's mantle, so to speak, was going to fall on my life. And I was going to be the next guy as the oldest hen boy in the family. And so I'm thinking, I got it made. And I'm standing there and I'm on the Aegean Sea, which, you know, when you study the Bible and the New Testament missions journeys of Paul, he actually sailed not far from where we were staying. And the funniest thing is I'm standing there, you know, flying in private planes, thinking I'm preaching the same gospel as Paul. Meanwhile, Paul, who sailed that body of water I'm standing on, was beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned. He was made poor so that others could be made rich with the gospel. He gave up everything to follow Christ and then said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. All things are rubbish compared to the Lord Jesus. And in my mind, I was just like Paul, except I was doing it in uh, you know, the modern-day prosperity style of ministry. And so I couldn't have been further from the truth. Kasia, I, I, you write that in your book, and you you write something like, the only difference was I was preaching an entirely different gospel or something like that. And I remember having the yeah. sort of like, wow, like that is that is uh, convicting. The other thing I'd love for you to talk about is one of the the real evils of the prosperity gospel is, is how it particularly preys on the vulnerable uh, and the marginalized uh, and, and the weak and those uh, who are poor. Uh, and so you tell a story uh, of you being in India. Was it Mumbai? 
Yeah, in Mumbai. Do you mind just telling that story and, and particularly the things you saw there and, and the cracks that begin to maybe uh, show in your theology and the things that you guys were doing? Yeah, we're at this crusade, and it's set on acres and acres of land that we had rented, and there was over a million people at the service. I know that this sounds insane and, and almost false, like that. how could there be a million people at a, a church service or some crusade, but there was, and they uh, even had larger crowds in subsequent years. But I was there, 2004, and we're in Mumbai, people everywhere. There's three or so metal barricades between the stage and the people. It's like nothing the eye has ever seen. I, I was blown away. People look like ants. They were just everywhere. And we're in the middle of the crusade. And I remember asking my dad, hey, can I go down with you to the, to the healing area? I just want to experience it. I was, I was on the stage the whole time, and it was for safety reasons and whatnot. My dad didn't want me down there because um, it was just crazy. And I said, just let me come once. He said, okay. So he took me down there. And if you've ever watched a movie where – uh, similar to like Saving Private Ryan, if you remember that one, or these war movies, where they've got this new uh, method of filming where the camera is very shaky and there's a lot of movement, and you feel as though you're first person. You feel as though you're the one walking. Right. And it's there's mayhem, and there's noise, and there's uh, just constant chaos. It felt like that. I go down there to this area, and there are people laying in the mud. There's people with, you know, like wooden medical equipment. It's not even medical equipment. They've made homemade splints. There's people who are blind. There's people crying out. They're shouting out. They're wanting to be healed. And I just remember that being etched in my mind. I'm walking through this section where all the sick are. They put them in one area. And I look up for a moment, and I catch my, my uncle, and I see him on stage, and I see the white suit. And for some reason, that just seared in my mind. The contrast between these people laying in the mud, they're sick, they're desperate, they're not getting healed, they're poor, they're broken, they've, they've limped, walked, or carried children and themselves to this field in hopes that the you know American wealthy televangelist is going to give them what they need. They're living in the gutter. Uh, you know, We're living in the palace, so to speak. And I remember that contrast as I looked up at the stage and I see a perfectly clean white suit and a beautiful choir on a platform and on my right and to my left, I just see carnage and brokenness. And at the moment, I had a brief thought and it etched in my mind, but it wasn't until years later that that moment came to, came to memory and I realized that is the perfect picture of what's happening with the prosperity gospel. There are people who are exploiting the poor and they're living it up. And then there are those in the gutter who are simply dragged along in false hope. So we've gone into, you know, we, we jumped right into this conversation and, and, and have heard part of your story of growing up in this uh, environment of the prosperity gospel. We've talked about the Crusades and, and some of the origins of it coming from some different um, historical ways of thinking and how that Oprah type uh, view of things, uh, you know, confessing it and possessing it, which was name it and claim it and, and these things. Can you just maybe draw us back into the essence of the prosperity gospel itself? What, what is the gospel of prosperity? And um, for those who are not familiar with it, how would you explain it? Um, you know, just the essence of it. 
Yeah, typically the prosperity gospel and the, the word gospel means good news. So you could say the good news about prosperity. Prosperity means, in prosperity gospel terms, healing, so all total healing, so no sickness, health, so and then wealth, riches, money, and then happiness, meaning your relationships are perfect, your marriage is thriving, everything in life is just perfect. That's the goal, and that's the message. And the reason why it's tied to the gospel is similar to how we might understand the gospel, the good news, which is Jesus died for our sins. Uh, we repent and confess faith in him, and we're saved by faith, not works. We're saved by grace. He pours out his mercy and love upon us, and we receive the free gift of salvation by believing in him. That's the gospel, the good news, that Jesus died for sin and, and we're saved by grace through faith. Well, the prosperity gospel adds to that, right. and so it's gospel plus, and says, well, yeah, sure, Jesus died on a cross for your sin, but he also died and atoned for, not just sin, but the atonement, the work on the cross, was also for sickness and disease, and it was for brokenness and poverty, and it was for divorces and bad relationships, and it was for all the things that you could experience that make you sorrowful in life. And you know what? There's a beautiful truth. We see in Revelation chapter 21 that in the end, there will be, because of Christ and because of God's love and mercy upon us, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more tears, no more death, right? That's the promise for the Christian, eternal life. And there are certainly great promises wrapped up in the atonement, but what the prosperity gospel does is say, well, you can have all those things now. You can believe in Jesus, and it, it's, it's, it's a little bit about sin, and it's a little bit about heaven, but man, God's like a, a, an ATM. Just swipe them with a debit card of faith yeah. and, and just believe. And these Christians who tell you that it's just about your heart and your salvation, they're missing out. Let me tell you what the real blessing of Christianity is that you get saved from your sin, but also God is going to heal you. God is going to bless you, and God is going to give you perfect relationships. And if you don't have those things, here's the, the, the demonic lie, guys. If you don't have those things, you don't have real faith. Hmm. You're not tapping into all that God has for you. You're not experiencing the fullness of God. And that's when it becomes a works salvation or a works gospel, that God only loves you, and he only blesses you, and he only gives you good things if you're a good boy or a good girl. And being good means giving money, and it means having faith, and it means following these people. And that's a lie. Uh, we see in the Bible, God pour out mercy and compassion and grace on people who have no faith at all, like the man in John 5. He doesn't even know who Jesus is, and Jesus heals him. Yeah. Uh, we do see Jesus moved it com with compassion, like the woman with the issue of blood who crawls through the crowd pulls on the hem of his garment, and he looks at her and says, Daughter, your faith has made you whole, made you well. We do see Zacchaeus get up in a tree, and he's going, Man, i got to see Jesus. I need to see Jesus. And Jesus sees him, Hey, salvation's coming to your house. We do see these moving moments where people seek the Lord, and he draws them, and, and yes, God is moved with compassion. But never once are we promised that the gospel— is something that saves us from sin and then it's going to make us all rich. In fact, the Christian life is going to be more of a challenge. It's a cost to follow Christ, but the prosperity gospel wants to sell this other bag of goods.
So there would be varying degrees of the prosperity gospel across the Christian spectrum as well. And so there's the Benny Hinn in a white suit in $25,000 a night uh, hotel suites arriving on a private jet being transferred in a Bentley and and living a life of uh, extravagant wealth. And then there's also prosperity gospels being preached in local churches where they may not have those same rewards, but some of the theology is still designed around that and the pastor or the leaders of the church gaining that. And I, uh, I come from a past of seeing some of these abuses. And and for me, when I came to Christ, I was almost 20, and I, I went to the church my friend was going to, and he was the guy that was the one who who was initially discipling me. It was through his influence that I came to Christ. And so I come from this non-Christian background into a church that had been largely influenced by the Word of Faith movement and a lot of conversations around activating your faith with a financial gift and they would have yeah. things called miracle offerings, and so you would take your offering envelope and you would write the miracle that you needed. It might be you wanted to wow. get pregnant. It might be that you wanted to get healed. It might be that you're looking for a new job. It might be that you have debt that you're asking God to erase. It might be a broken relationship, and so you take your need and you put it together and activate it with your faith, and your faith is seen in the, f- in the form of a financial gift, and that kind of miracle offering says to God, I believe that you are the one who can provide for my need, whatever my need is, and I've written it on the card, and, uh, and, and I'm asking you to meet me in this. And so I was actually in a church for a number of years um, with lovely people uh, who I love, who I disagree with, and, uh, and I was formed into that thinking, and it was only after really... You know, deeply diving into theological studies that I realized how insidious this was and how broken this system was. And we had lots of conversations around the man of God theology, the touch not God's anointed uh, principle. We had lots of things around you don't question authority. And when I questioned authority and when I quote unquote touched God's anointed in those ways, um, it was certainly the uh, the swift hammer of uh, church justice that would fall uh, and, and you would yeah. be corrected in that way because you were seen as a person who did not have faith. And so while these people did not live with the wealth uh, that you're talking about, which is in a different stratosphere, the system of thinking and the, the, the pervasive theology was still evident in that local church in a small city. And, and I guess what I would say is, where do you see this then? Because there's a, there's a spectrum of prosperity gospel thinking. Maybe just speak to that for a few moments, Costi, about, you know, there's the, the hens on one end of that spectrum, but there's also the, the tendencies to desire material wealth and goodness and healing. How have you encountered that as you've had this radical shift in your own thinking? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and what you described is really accurate and more common today. You could put us in the category of more extreme results and and being the less than one percent percenters, but the the junior version, if you will, or the more common version is prominent. And what we're seeing in the church is this idea. I, I tend to talk in pictures, and so just picture for a moment that you have been hoping for a baby or you know buying your first house, which I, I know in Vancouver is is probably unlikely or insane for some people because the pricing is just through the roof. But but just imagine for a moment, um, especially in Vancouver, you've been saving and you've been trusting the Lord and you've been praying. You're like, we just want a house. We want a place to to measure the kids as they grow on the wall. And we want, you know, 
the old china ware that grandma had in her kitchen and whatever all the all the cute memories and just the sweet things and you wait and wait and wait and then all of a sudden you get your first house what do we often say god is so good right he's so good oh we had a baby god is so good and i got a promotion at work god is so good god's good when things are good right that's that's one of the the ways that i would call it prosperity gospel light it's like diet coke it's the light version it's not crazy televangelist preachers saying, hey, give $1,000 to my ministry and God will give you a baby. It's not the outlandish extreme. It's the subtle ones. It's going, hey, because things are good, God is good. And it's forgetting that God's nature is good, meaning he's always good, even when our circumstances are not. And when we're in the valley, God is still good. When we're on the mountain, God is still good. That's one of the ways that I think the prosperity gospel creeps in is we start thinking then when things go bad or we get a cancer diagnosis or we're having challenges in life, man, what did I do wrong? Uh, Maybe God's mad at me. Maybe I didn't cut a big enough check to the church. Maybe I haven't been having enough faith, and that's why things aren't going well. But then we have to go back to the Word of God and see in James 1, verses 2 through 4, and in places like Romans 5, we see that we're to count it all joy when we experience trials, not because it's fun to suffer, it's hard to suffer, but the results from those things produce things in us that money can't buy. Character, perseverance, hope, endurance, and it actually proves our faith. A lot of people who might think they're Christians, uh, you know, they, they want Jesus when Jesus is giving them what they want, but the question we have to ask is, do we still want Jesus when life is really hard? Do we still want Jesus when there's a price we pay for following him? Do we still want Jesus when, you know, Pastor Brett gets up there and and gives us the hard truth one Sunday? Do I still want Jesus when it irks my convictions and it starts messing with my lifestyle? I think those are the real questions we have to ask when times get tough. And being faithful through those times is a great way to be encouraged and say, wow, my faith is genuine. I I made it through, Lord. You brought me through. So the prosperity gospel light is very subtle. It's almost more dangerous than the crazy preachers because we can all laugh at the crazy preachers and go, yeah, nobody believes that. But in our own life, uh, there are some subtleties to watch for. Well, and the subtleties are really a a dangerous place because you are, are putting God on trial as you go through different situations in life and you begin to ask the question of why is this happening to me if God is a God who wants to bless me? Where is he in my miscarriage? Uh, Where is he with this diagnosis? Where is he in my bankruptcy? Where is he in my pain and my sort of disease that doesn't have any any remedy and, and there's no there's no way that I'm going to go from this chronic thing. I'm going to live with it my whole life. Where is God in the midst of that? And when you put God on trial in that way, then you set the standards by which he is proved faithful. And so if God is faithful, you would say he's going to do A, B, and C. And if God is faithful, right. he will accomplish X, Y, and Z. And why am I still single? Or why is my marriage difficult? Or, and, and God, if you're, really, if you're really God, why would you do this to me? And it just is so antithetical to the message of the gospel of a crucified Savior. And the painful part comes when you sit down with people 
in, in, in who have been influenced by this in, in minor measures who have it as actually a built-in feature of what they would see as the nature and character of God, who then don't understand what they have done wrong. Yep. Constantly. You can have nailed it more accurately. The, the idea that, um, that you've described, I think, is, is the danger in all our hearts. Every one of us want comfort. Every one of us, we, we lean into, um, into a God who makes things easier. I think that's natural. I think it's human. But again, we go back to, like what you said, the gospel. We go back to God's Word and go, well, what, what does the Bible say about God's nature? What does the Bible say about trial? What does the Bible say about my situation? And I think we need to go back to the perspective that Paul explains to uh, multiple congregations in the New Testament when he's, he's continuing to point to the eternal perspective. You know, you see that in the book of Philippians uh, when he talks about uh, having joy and focusing on what's to come. You see that when he writes First and Second Thessalonians and telling the church to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. An eternal perspective helps us realize that we're not living as Christians for our, you know, 60 to 70 year snippet on earth. We're living for eternity, and eternity vastly outweighs and outmeasures anything that this earth can offer us. And I, I think personally that, you know, church doesn't save you. I think we all know that. Going to church on a Sunday doesn't save you. Going to a small group doesn't save you. Giving money to the church doesn't save you. Serving in children's ministry doesn't save you. None of our works save us. And yet, when we go to church and we hear preaching, it's it's a reminder. It's a perspective uh, for us. When we go and serve others, we are seeing what our purpose is on earth. When we live and give generously, we're realizing this world is not about me and my resources are not mine. They're God's, and I've been given a stewardship of those. So often, uh, too, we need to flip the perspective or help people flip their perspective so that they start thinking eternally. And it's like the, the old song, I turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's a perspective shift that often we need as Christians today. That's so good. Uh, Kosti, I, I want to just shift a bit here. Uh, how would you, if someone's listening right now, who either has a friend or a family member who's been influenced by the prosperity gospel uh, on whatever degree or to whatever degree, uh, how would you speak to them right now? How would you counsel them if they came to your office and said, help me help this person, you know, walk through this, or, or help me as I seek to disciple this person? How would you speak to them right now? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a preacher, so let's do a little bit of alliteration. Two Bs, okay? Um, be, be careful or be weary of cage stage, okay? Cage stage is this thing that, uh, if you've never heard of cage stage and you're listening, this is what it means. You, you get some people that are really zealous, they're really passionate, and they're going, man, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to save these people, and I'm going to tell them what's up, and I'm going to shake them up, you know, like a bull in a china shop, so to speak. You're going in like a wrecking ball. Um, I would first say, be really careful of cage stage. Why it's called cage stage is, you know, you get saved or you have a lot of zeal, and it may be best for you to be caged for a little while, lest you say something stupid or hurtful to someone um, that ruins your chance to be a witness. Yeah. So 
be careful. If you're in cage stage, the best thing to do is pray for these people, talk with pastors and leaders, and assess your heart. Do you want to win the person or you don't want to win the argument? Are you going after their heart or you know, are you trying to beat them over the head? And I have failed at that. I don't talk as one who's done it perfectly. I talk as someone who, who was in cage stage for a couple of years, um, you know, circa 2012, 2013, actually after that year of, of contacting and welcoming you to Vancouver, Brett, wow. uh, my life flipped upside down. I left the family and, you know, my, I went, I, I got radically saved and I began to, to kind of go back and, you know, hurl things at the family and go, man, you guys are false. You guys got to figure this out. You're wolves in sheep's clothes. I mean, I was going off and it was cage stage. I needed to be quiet, sit down, go to Bible school, seminary, and be faithful and learn and then go back and offer them something from a position of calm stability. So, so first, um, be careful of cage stage. Second, uh, build relationships for the purpose of evangelism, meaning you want to be able to build relational bridges. A lot of people think, well, you know, you're not on the same team as me, so I'm cutting you off. You're out of my life. And that's not what we see in the Bible. There are some warnings about, you know, chumming it up. We're not like going to the keg rooftop for stakes with false teachers. Like that's probably not the best way to approach it. We're not chumming it up and going, well, whatever, no big deal. There, there's not wisdom in that, but there also isn't wisdom in cutting everybody off and yelling at that everyone's a heretic. We want to build relationships with people. So some of your family members that are caught up in this, they don't need you to beat on them. They need you to build a relationship with them. So ask a lot of questions. Use what one pastor mentor uh, taught me early on was the, the HMU strategy, which is help me understand. Instead of using terminal terms like, why would you ever believe that? You're crazy. That, that's really terminal. That doesn't open someone's heart. We might try saying, so, you know, Brett, uh, you've explained some things that you believe. Uh, help me understand your line of thinking, you know, when, when so-and-so or when your pastor explains that you've got to give a certain amount of money to get God's blessing. Um, I'm not attacking you at all. I really want to learn, and I want to hear your perspective. Would you help me understand um, – you know, some of the things that go through your mind, because I come from a different tradition or different teaching, and that doesn't always make sense to me, but I really want to understand how you view that. That can be a powerful moment for us as, as Absolutely. bridge builders. It doesn't mean I'm compromising just because I'm, I'm being caring. And so that's another maybe element to this is a lot of times in the in whether it's like the young, restless, reformed circles or the more conservative circles, we see somebody extend their hand to someone else and we think, you know, and maybe that person is not someone we'd normally agree with. And we think, Oh my goodness, they're compromising. They've left the faith. You know, they're not on, they're not, they're not on the battle lines anymore. Right. We've got to realize that that's, that would be uh, a slippery slope to go down. So we can be caring, meet for coffee, have dialogue and it, but that doesn't mean we're compromising. We can be firm in theology, but still flexible with people. So I hope that helps. No, that's super helpful, Costin. If I can actually just pull back a little bit further. So we talked about that on sort of the personal level, but sort of like the church level. And so I'm a pastor in a town. This is the hypothetical. I'm a pastor in a the town. There's another prosperity gospel church uh, in that town or in that city. How are we to relate to one another as churches? What are things that we should be saying and, or not saying? Uh, what are things that we should be 
do you, do you understand the question? Like, how should we relate on sort of I that, do. Big, that bigger level? I do, yeah. So that's where things, and this would just be my personal conviction based on what I see in the New Testament. I think that's when the dial turns a little more and a little more serious um, and a little more, well, it's always serious, but a little more maybe firm is when I'm not dealing one on one with individuals and I'm dealing with the church as a whole, first, I want to make sure that we're protecting the, the standard for church leaders at our church, and we're protecting our doctrinal convictions. Paul told Timothy, uh, guard your life and doctrine closely. They preserve you and those who hear you. So we have a responsibility. James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers. You incur stricter judgment. Um, we want to be really self-aware that as church leaders, we bear a very, very weighty responsibility. It's not power for the sake of power's sake. We've been given authority in the church, and it's God's authority, and it's his, ultimately his church, and so it's a delegated authority. So I'm a steward, a manager of what he's given. So I think first we need to view it that way, and then that allows me to see the people I'm preaching to as people, sheep I need to feed, I need to protect them. I need to lead them. I need to make sure I'm clear about the dangers. Uh, I think there's a way to do that tastefully. I don't think we need to get up every week in our pulpits and and ruin the series in the Gospel of John by going heretic hunting for seven weeks in a row. We just need to preach the Word of God. But at the same time, um, you know, Paul, Romans 16, verses 17 and 18 says, to mark those who cause divisions, they're teaching things that are contrary. Ephesians 5.11 says, don't participate in, in the evil deeds of darkness, rather expose them. I think you've got a model to call some things out, but we need to do it with solutions. We're not just hollering about things for the sake of you know, being polemical. We want to really be tasteful and constructive. On that level, too, I think there's, there's maybe only a few times where you've got to highlight something in your town. For example, if I were to have a false teacher... Uh, down the street, and he's really just raiding the church, and he's he's exploiting people. And I've got a bunch of people in my church that are being tempted over there. I, I may address that with the church family. Um, at the same time, I may call that pastor as well uh, and, and have a one-on-one with him and say, brother, um, I call you brother in this for the sake of love, but based on what you're teaching, I, I'm I'm wondering, are you even a brother? And then I'm going to use the HMUs with him and go, help me understand um, what's going on here. If he tells me to, to kind of take a hike and, and watch my back and that he's coming for the people and he's, he's a real man of God, I know what I've, I've got on my hands, and I'm going to protect the church I serve, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's so helpful uh, what you've said, uh, both personally, relationally, and then also uh, church to church, um, because there are wonderful people who are brothers and sisters in the faith who have maybe bought into aspects of the prosperity gospel, and there's certainly uh, a difference between trying to win the person and win an argument, and I would say that there's uh, a lot of my friends who have come out of this environment, and I have friends who are still in that environment, and I, I think there's the cage stage. I was there for a little bit. And I think there's aspects of it that uh, are very painful to delve back into. But there's certainly, uh, there, there has to be an open hand to meet somebody with whom you disagree. 
and then to extend that open hand to say, can we come along and, and maybe look at this together? And so I, I really appreciate your tone and your candor, uh, Cost. We really are thankful for you coming on the podcast, taking time to talk about this. Again, your book is called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. You can find that wherever books are sold. You've got your website, forthegospel.org, uh, and people can connect with you on social media. All the links are on that website. And uh, I just want to say a personal uh, thank you to you, um, you know, we, we looked at this book and, and, uh, and have friends who have been recommending this book because of their background in that kind of church. And I'm so thankful for you to, to raise a flag in a sense and say, hey, here's where I was coming from. Here's the pain in the journey. Here's what's going on. And I have hope for the future. And so I just want to honor you for that. Thank you so much for the work you've put into it and for the gospel you preach. Well, thank you guys so much. Keep doing a great job up north and uh, hope we get to connect soon. That's fantastic. Thanks, Costi. Thanks, Costi. Yeah, guys, thank you. Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.